I'm Andrew Smith. This is Today in Church History, a place we're reminded that history is truly his story. History is the story of God and the demonstration of his glory in the theater of world events. Today is Thursday, June 13th, 2019. But on this day in history, June 13, 1525, with only a few close friends surrounding them, Martin Luther and Katharina von Bora were married. Luther was in his early 40s, and Katie her mid-20s. Officiating the ceremony was their parish pastor. Though people of the 16th century were sometimes married in churches, this wedding took place at the so-called Black Cloister, a mammoth three-story former monastery given to the Luthers as a wedding present by the elector of Saxony himself. Such would serve as the home of these Reformation newlyweds. It was here that Luther would have his table talks, while Katie oversaw the day-to-day operations of the household. But there was something especially significant to Luther himself about his new home. It wasn't actually his new home, but his old home. You see, this is where Luther lived as a member of the Augustinian Order of Monks as a friar. In a room located somewhere in the southwest corner of the monastery, Luther had lived in the darkness, indeed the blackness, of monastic despair. But his anger toward a holy God had completely been dispelled through the light of the gospel. He now saw God as a kind father, who had sent his son to die in Luther's place and bear the wrath that Luther himself deserved because of Luther's sin. He would live in between these walls as a new man, justified before God, still a sinner, but a sinner saved by God's amazing grace. One of the Reformation's greatest twists of irony manifested itself in Luther's marriage. The former monastery, once populated by celibate men, was now the home of a former monk and a former nun who would raise a family of six children of their own, including another four adopted. Katharina von Bora, or Katie, as Martin effectually referred to her, had literally been rescued from her convent through the preaching of Luther himself. Katie was born to impoverished German nobility, causing her to be shipped to a convent at the young age of five. The first place her father sent her was the Benedictine cloister at Brena in 1504. Following this, she ended up at the cloister at Nimschen, not far from Leipzig. As the Reformation matured, its teachings began affecting the very practical area of marriage. For centuries, the church viewed celibacy as a high spiritual ideal. Marriage was fine for non-clergy who could not curb their fleshly desires, but for the clergy, holy matrimony was taboo. But this did not keep the priests from committing lascivious acts. The official doctrine said one thing, but actual lifestyle patterns of the priests said another thing, where they garnered a reputation as being sexually immoral. Luther himself saw this hypocrisy firsthand on his trip to Rome during his days as a monk. Sometime around the year 1519, Luther began preaching about marriage and wrote treatises on the unbiblical notion of celibacy vows. Throughout his career, Luther gave lectures, preached sermons, and wrote pastoral letters commending the value of marriage as ordained by God from the beginning. But he didn't stop there. He also elevated family life in general and the important responsibility of raising children. He referred to the household as an earthly kingdom. He referred to the husband and the father as the priest of the home. For Luther, marriage and family life was not a side issue to the Reformation, but was at the very heart of it. Luther had been preaching in nearby Grimma as early as 1519, and his teaching on marriage had reached the convent where Katie was staying. The day before Easter, April 7, 1523, Katie and her fellow nuns were smuggled out of the convent. Along with 11 other nuns, Katie was desperate for rescue and had actually written Luther earlier for help. It was a capital offense in those days to abandon monastic vows. Katie and her friends were risking their lives. 
Luther himself oversaw the rescue mission by employing the help of a man by the last name of Kopp, a 60-year-old tradesman. Kopp was perfect cover for the job. Instructed to simply make a delivery of food to the convent, he would hide the nuns in his wagon for the return trip to an area protected by Duke Frederick. Three of the women returned to their families almost immediately, and then after worshipping on Easter Sunday, the remaining nine nuns were escorted by Kopp back to Wittenberg on Monday morning to be under Luther's care. Luther played the very active role of matchmaker, seeking suitors for these nuns until there was only one left who had not married. This one was Katie. Martin took her for himself. Now Luther's reason for getting married doesn't appear to us as that romantic. He said he did it to spite the devil and spite the pope and to please his father. Even still, Luther had a clear love for his wife. I'd like to read from Luther's famous work entitled The Estate of Marriage. Now, we're not sure if this was originally a sermon that Luther preached or not. If it was, he most certainly later expanded it to a pretty lengthy document. That's why we're just going to read an excerpt here today. Luther says this, and I quote, Now, the ones who recognize the estate of marriage are those who firmly believe that God himself instituted it, brought husband and wife together, and ordained that they should beget children and care for them. For this they have from God's word, in Genesis chapter 1. And they can be certain that he does not lie. They can therefore also be certain that the estate of marriage and everything that goes with it in the way of conduct, works, and suffering is pleasing to God. Now tell me, how can the heart have greater good, joy, and delight than in God when one is certain that his estate, conduct, and work is pleasing to God? That is what it means to find a wife. Many have wives, but few find wives. Why? They are blind. They fail to see that their life and conduct with their wives is the work of God and pleasing in His sight. Could they but find that, then no wife would be so hateful, so ill-tempered, so ill-mannered, so poor, so sick, that they would fail to find in her their heart's delight, and would always be reproaching God for His work, creation, and will. And because they see that it is the good pleasure of their beloved Lord, they would be able to have peace and grief, joy in the midst of bitterness, happiness in the midst of tribulations, as the martyrs have in suffering. We err in that we judge the work of God according to our own feelings and regard not His will but our own desire. This is why we are unable to recognize His works and persist in making evil that which is good and regarding as bitter that which is pleasant. Nothing is so bad, not even death itself, but what it becomes sweet and tolerable if only I know and am certain that it is pleasing to God. Then there follows immediately that of which Solomon speaks, he obtains favor from the Lord, Proverbs 18.22. Now observe that when that clever harlot, our natural reason, takes a look at married life, she turns up her nose and says, Alas, must I rock the baby? wash its diapers, make its bed, smell its stench, stay up nights with it, take care of it when it cries, heal its rashes and sores, and on top of that care for my wife, provide for her, labor at my trade, take care of this and take care of that, do this and do that, endure this and endure that, and whatever else of bitterness and drudgery married life involves? What? Should I make such a prisoner of myself? Oh, you poor wretched fellow, have you taken a wife? Fie, fie, upon such wretchedness and bitterness. It is better to remain free and lead a peaceful, carefree life. I will become a priest or a nun and compel my children to do likewise. What then does Christian faith say to this? It opens its eyes, looks upon all those insignificant, distasteful, and despised duties in the spirit, and is aware that they are all adorned with divine approval as with the costliest gold and jewels. It says, O oh God, 
Because I am certain that thou hast created me as a man, and hast from my body begotten this child, I also know for a certainty that it meets with thy perfect pleasure. I confess to thee that I am not worthy to rock the little babe, or wash its diapers, or to be entrusted with the care of the child and its mother. How is it that I, without any merit, have come to this distinction of being certain that I am serving thy creature and thy most precious will? Oh, how gladly will I do so, though the duties should be more insignificant and despised, neither frost nor heat, neither drudgery nor labor, will distress or dissuade me, for I am certain that it is thus pleasing in thy sight. A wife, too, should regard her duties in the same light, as she suckles the child, rocks and bathes it, and cares for it in other ways, and as she busies herself with other duties and renders help and obedience to her husband. These are truly golden and noble works. Now you tell me, when a father goes ahead and washes diapers, or performs some other mean task for his child, and someone ridicules him as an effeminate fool, though that father is acting in the spirit just described and in Christian faith, my dear fellow, you tell me, which of the two is most keenly ridiculing the other? God, with all his angels and creatures, is smiling, not because that father is washing diapers, but because he is doing so in Christian faith. Those who sneer at him and see only the task but not the faith, are ridiculing God with all his creatures as the biggest fool on earth. Indeed, they are only ridiculing themselves with all their cleverness. They are nothing but devil's fools. I say these things in order that we may learn how honorable a thing it is to live in that estate which God has ordained. In it we find God's word and good pleasure, by which all the works, conduct, and sufferings of that estate become holy, godly, and precious, so that Solomon even congratulates such a man, and says in Proverbs 5.18, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. And again in Ecclesiastes, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Doubtless Solomon is not speaking here of carnal pleasure, since it is the Holy Spirit who speaks through him. He is rather offering godly comfort to those who find much drudgery in married life. This he does by way of defense against those who scoff at the divine ordinance and, like the pagans, seek but fail to find in marriage anything beyond a carnal and fleeting sensual pleasure. Observe that thus far I have told you nothing of the estate of marriage except that which the world and reason and their blindness shrink from and sneer at as a mean, unhappy, troublesome mode of life. We have seen how all these shortcomings in fact comprise noble virtues and true delight if one but looks at God's word and will, and thereby recognizes its true nature. I will not mention the other advantages and delights implicit in a marriage that goes well, that husband and wife cherish one another, become one, serve one another, and other attendant blessings, lest somebody shut me up by saying that I am speaking about something I have not experienced, and that there is more gall than honey in marriage. I base my remarks on Scripture which to me is surer than all experience and cannot lie to me. He who finds still other good things in marriage profits all the more, and should give thanks to God. Whatever God calls good must of necessity always be good, unless men do not recognize it or perversely misuse it. But the greatest good in married life, that which makes all suffering and labor worthwhile, is that God grants offspring and commands that they be brought up to worship and serve God. In all the world this is the noblest and most precious work, because to God there can be nothing dearer than the salvation of souls. Now since we are all duty-bound to suffer death, if need be, that we might bring a single soul to God, you can see how rich the estate of marriage is in good works. God has entrusted to its bosom souls begotten of its own body, on whom it can lavish all manner of Christian works. Most certainly father and mother are apostles, bishops, and priests to their children, for it is they who make them acquainted with the gospel, 
In short, there is no greater or nobler authority on earth than that of parents over their children. For this authority is both spiritual and temporal. Whoever teaches the gospel to another is truly his apostle and bishop. Mitre and staff and great estates indeed produce idols, but teaching the gospel produces apostles and bishops. See, therefore, how good and great is God's work and ordinance. This has been just a small excerpt of Luther's work entitled The Estate of Marriage. I truly hope it's been an encouragement to you. History is truly his story. It's the story of God and the demonstration of his glory in the theater of world events. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Today in Church History. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts, you can find a collection of them by visiting my website, www.heartaflame.org. You can also find me on Apple iTunes by searching for Today in Church History. History is spelled H-I-S hyphen S-T-O-R-Y. H-I-S hyphen S-T-O-R-Y. And as always, you can find me on Facebook or Twitter. If you're looking for me on Twitter, you can find me at at Rev Andrew Smith. At Rev Andrew Smith. Until next time, I'm your host, Andrew Smith.